we've made it past the first episode. It's finally a thing. The Art vs. Commerce podcast. Thanks for uh, tuning in again if you're a, a repeat. And uh, if not, please check out episode one with uh, filmmaker, commercial director extraordinaire John Bragel. Uh, for this episode of Art vs. Commerce is going to be with uh, Joey L. He is a young photographer, uh, 25 years old, um, insanely talented. I don't even, it's kind of unfair. Uh, you go to his website, joeyl.com, and um, I don't know, just be amazed, be blown away. It's um, it's striking. The, the, the dude has an aesthetic that is undeniable. You can spot his work easily, and he has been prolific in terms of the amount of work that he's been doing uh, at such a high level for such a long time, considering he's 25, he's been doing it professionally since, I don't know, 16, 17, 18. Uh, we talk all about it, and it's just... At this point, you know, he does major campaigns. His work is on double-decker buses around New York City. He's had billboards in Times Square. That stuff, I don't know, he was like 21, 22, 23, and that stuff was already happening. So at this point, it's like, you know, what do you even, where do you take it uh, from here? And the truth is that he takes it all over the world. Uh, We talk about the notion of traveling and doing documentary work and what that means, um, both artistically but also uh, you know spiritually as like a human being and being out there uh and then we um they're out now at this point but he he uh, on on his own went to Syria and Iraq to take photos of uh Kurdish fighters so it's it's pretty incredible i think even more so than you know just discussing it in a general sense is hearing his answers just because i don't they said they're it's surprising um his level of candor is surprising and the way in which he goes about everything it's not um in in a great way it's not what you would expect and i think that that is refreshing and it's and it's great to hear come along for the ride check out joel.com before you get into this to know to know his work uh just makes hearing him talk all all the better so uh thanks for being here So growing up, I had a lot of friends that were in hardcore bands and screamo bands <laughs> and uh, uh, devil music, as they say. And uh, I could never play anything. I'm not very musically gifted. I'm tone deaf. I like can't sing. So when my friends were doing that, I also wanted to be cool. So I was the I became the photographer. <laughs> so a lot of my earlier like first paid gigs were uh, band photography for like myspace pages and then how, how worked, old were you when that has when that was happening uh, i was in high school so like grade 10 11 12 i was doing music photography and um then i started working with like small magazines like alternative press and like you know things like that and that's the scene and but then, there must have been like a jump like at what when you first started so the photos with your friends mm-hmm. who were playing in the band that was just as a way to like still hang out because you couldn't practice with them and stuff like that yeah and then it turned into a job because i had an interest in that because uh you know i was a young kid listening to that kind of music and um when i started going on tour with some bands for photography like live photography or or group shots and things like that that became a minor paid assignments for magazines so a lot of those early bands i used to work with like protest the hero or uh, as cities burn um were you doing this stuff like what was the mindset that you were 
I just want to go and like, oh, you're going to pay me? That's great. Or were you like thinking, no, like I want to get paid to do this? How much, how like aware were you of the business stuff? What I was saying was all those early bands, I started the managers of those small bands man it started to manage me so my first agent was actually a music rep and then he he found out really quickly that he could make more money (laughs) utilizing my (laughs) photography skills with these magazines than he could uh with some of the small bands that he had so i would go on tour with the bands that they represented hook up with another band go in their van for a tour go with another band and do like photo shoots all along the way and then syndicate those to the magazine so this was in high school this was well i should have been in high school but this was in high school time <laughs> but i wasn't i wasn't in school now what year did you drop out i didn't i never officially dropped out of high school well, i have my you stopped uh, going well yeah i missed a lot of high school i have my high school diploma i was actually a really good student um but the fact is is that i was doing what i was passionate about and i'm from a f- small town so there was actually certain things I was able to get away with, especially because the principal was the father of a friend of mine. And they understood that I wasn't, you know, going out to party or whatever. That I was actually working and shooting. I was traveling a lot. And they made like very special rules for me for the months of school that I missed. And so were you not, I don't think you were still lawful. finishing each year? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, on their I books had, at least? On their books at least, yeah. I have my high school uh, certificate. It's something that um, actually, looking back now, I, I don't really it wasn't really worth the struggle of going to school and also working. Looking back now, I probably should have dropped out, but that's not something that I recommend for, for people because I'm like against the knowledge or anything. I just really killed myself over those years trying to balance both. And it was a really stressful time. That's super. I mean, this is really interesting because a lot of the conversations I've had so far, I don't know the business, the business side or the notion that this could be a career that in in the field that they're working now the reason why i'm talking to them that comes later so this is so early yeah well my father is a freelancer in a sense you you, you know like uh my dad's always been his own boss and um it to me was always uh a very self-evident path that if you had a skill that you could somehow use it to make money and as long as you uh were very careful um you know, you could also remain passionate about it. I can't say that every single thing my dad worked on, he like loves, but I can't say about me either. But the fact is, is uh, if you're really into something, then you can balance high school with touring with a band at the same time because you care about it so much. And at that time in my life, I was really like, you know, I wasn't a total, like, I'd love to tell you I was super cool and like a rebel and didn't go to school. But like at that time, I actually really cared about finishing school. And it was like this thing like, oh, no, if I miss school, I'm going to like be a loser my whole life. And that sort of kept me balancing both worlds. But looking back at it now, I'm thankful to a lot of the teachers I had in school and thankful to a lot of the things I learned. But I probably would have left in grade 11 or 12. But you know that's looking back and 12 is the end no or is that is it different in Canada yeah but I just wouldn't have finished okay. <laughs> I was too busy and I don't know there became a time where it's like for example I would go on like a personal project to India and I was really young and then I go back in the art class was drawing their hand so this was in still charcoal. during high school yeah like the assignment was draw your hand in charcoal in art class and, was, and I just got back from this you know my own project and I was like well why can't I use this toward the credit like no yeah this is the assignment and it was really frustrating because a lot of people 
a lot of people saw and recognized and I was very lucky, but also like there was a lot of things holding me back. And also, you know, it was, a um, you know, I'm from, from a small town and everybody knows each other. So it was, it was really weird to be traveling. How many people were in your school? Uh, a couple hundred. The whole, for every, all grades. Yeah, but I, I was in a, like a uniform Catholic school. It wasn't the, the most popular school in the area. Um, there was a much bigger school, but I went to a small, small gotcha. Catholic school. Yeah. So, um, it, it sounds like once you started or once like the interest came from the music stuff, you were clearly thinking long term, this is what I'm doing with my life. I am going to be a photographer and I'm going to support yeah. myself this way. Yeah. Was yeah. that the mindset? I think so. Um, it's hard. It's hard to say what I <laughs> what I was thinking back then, but I well, always why knew that. Why photography? Well, let let me say that all my projects have always been a, a genuine interest, and a photographer being a photographer is more like a device to explore those things. So, like the places I've traveled, totally agree. The music I'm I'm into. The only way I know how to really properly experience those things is by going out and trying to create photos. So I think like even if I wasn't a photographer, you know, and I had like a like a normal job or something, there's nothing wrong with that. I would still want to go to the places I've been and observe and maybe be like a writer or an anthropologist or whatever. Um, so photography is like something I'm really passionate about, something I really love, like, you know, making light and making dynamic portraits but if i wasn't b involved in that directly i'd still go to the same areas in the same places but maybe do something else there yeah no that reminds me i used to i mean i guess i still say it like um i love documentary because I, I am essentially a chameleon ah every project i'm yeah. a different person altogether the only thing that stays the same is the lens but yeah what's coming through it is obviously changing drastically yeah yeah i think there's truth to that with those early projects that in, you know, a lot of travel and they were personal, how are you affording to do that? Uh, I fund all my projects through commission assignments. So actually, but even like, as a kid in high school, yeah, you were doing that. Yeah, I don't come from a rich family, and all those trips. A lot of people online and forums love to speculate that I have like rich parents or what whatever. But honestly, all my gear, all my trips were, have always been uh, self financed, whether through photo shoots or selling tutorials online. Um, so I, uh, and I think I'm, that's important because I have a lot of friends that, you know, a little more fortunate growing up and they are given everything. And uh, it's better sometimes to work for things. And um, yeah, all those early trips, it's not like I was spending, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. I was slumming it. <laughs> yeah. And I was living like I was living on tour with bands, but in a foreign country. The only country. real heavy expense was the flight but after exactly. that it mm -hmm. seemed you could do it very especially in mm. remote parts of the world there's not that much to spend money on yeah but also there's a distinction to be made where it's like when you do uh i i never really view personal projects as expenses and i know like that's something that you know you might be interested to, to talk about on arts versus commerce uh podcast but <laughs> it's like those those uh those assignments i don't you know, there's never a positive or negative balance to, to them. They're, they're, it's all uh, holistic in my career. So it's like the projects that I went out and did by myself, um, I see as um, pushing, an, an pushing my career forward. And the work that I got hired to do is people wanting it to look like that stuff or piggybacking off the things that I learned on those assignments. So 
I uh, I never really see it as an expense, um, but maybe bigger picture. And I, I under, yeah, mentally, I'm totally with you. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, it was more you like, do all the same stuff. You get it, yeah. Yeah, it was just the necessary. It's just imp- an impressive thing for, I guess, someone in high school, one, to have the means on their own. Yeah. And then two, to have the mentality to see that benefit. Where do you think, and that, I'm a, you're saying that that came, I guess, from your dad. Yeah. Where was your ability? Because I, I, I don't know. You just made more money than you thought you would. You're in, you're 16, 17, and you're doing it with your buddies on the road. Mm. I don't know how many people then think, you know what, I'm going to drop all the money I just made on this <laughs> trip to wherever. I guess, I think, um, hmm, how do I put this? But like, I don't know. I I grew up like when you're 16, you don't really have many expenses anyway. <laughs> like I'm living at home. Very so true. like, what else am I going to spend money on? I don't care about anything else. So it's like some of my friends may buy a car or buy clothes or whatever, but mm, I'd rather go on a trip somewhere. I think that was important for me and it still is to this day. Yeah. So how many trips of that like big nature did you do while still, I guess, tethered? to school in some way <laughs> maybe like four or five really yeah That's a i was lot, traveling man. a lot yeah so what what were those trips like india nepal bangladesh Colombia, um all over europe i went um how do you where did the travel bug come from i mean were you traveling with your family growing up on like no. family trip no no i'm from a small town and the farthest we'd ever been was maybe to niagara falls which is a couple hours <laughs> where i'm from and I think the travel bug actually came from that, you know, being from a small town cooped up and looking at the Internet and having this portal to the world and being like, what does it look like outside? Do I live like honestly, when I was younger, I thought maybe I'd lived in the Truman Show, like, you know, the movie, the, the yeah, Truman yeah, Show, yeah, great show. inside great, of the um, reality TV because we could never go anywhere. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I think every time you asked to fly, they were like, no, that. you're going to crash. Yeah, because I never became disillusioned from, uh, you know, there's some people I know of young kids that travel everywhere. And to them, it's not a big deal. It's just another trip. And even to this day, I never really see travel as that way. Um, I see it as a as a, the way you encountered it made it special. And yeah, it's still that special. hasn't left. Still so special, yeah. the first trip mm. that was India or no? Um, I'm well, just surprised I, I, uh, that it wasn't Europe the first or somewhere trip. a bit more quote-unquote first tame. big trip was in Europe I yeah. can't remember okay. if I went to to be honest I can't remember if I went to India or Germany first but um, I think Germany I don't know All right. I don't well. remember <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to do that to be uh, salty or whatever but I honestly because I've been to a lot of the same places more than once and um, they blend yeah, but I remember that's being a, on my first plane issue. and like looking out the window and going like, "Oh shit, it's taking off! Oh shit, it's taking off!" and like, "Oh!" and like being so excited. You were by yourself. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't. I'm tr- okay. Were there's you tr- well, did there's you, two trips. Who would you One, travel with? One, I was with? by myself to India. The other t- time, I was with my friend Peter going to Germany. Okay, I so still with a friend. It wasn't remember. like ever with your parents or something. No, no, no. Okay. I was by myself. Yeah, I just can't remember if I went to India. Or Germany. I gotta, I gotta look at that up on my. How photo big was your kit data. at that time? Like, were you com- a, were you walking around with like external an external no, light or it was something? A Minolta Dimage. <laughs> Minolta Dimage Good. was my first camera. And I took it with me on all those trips. And then later I got a 5D, a Canon 5D. Yeah. 
So you finally finish school or school ends one way or the other. There is what what goes on in your mind? Like, is there any thought of what I'm going to do, how I'm going to... You've been, at this point, you understand what it means to get paid for your pictures. Was there the notion of how does this become something, I don't know, more concrete? Or was it already concrete? Because uh, I don't know. It seems like this was... You were, you've been doing this professionally since, I don't know, you were old enough to, like, drive a car. I wanted to move out. I wanted to move to New York. So that's why I did. <laughs> I, At uh, what age? I was uh, 19. Who'd you know here? Nobody. I had um, I had a photo rep that had an office in London that I was doing some work with, London, UK, and then an office here in New York. And I'd driven down for a few assignments with uh, Forbes so you already, magazine. You were already dealing with you. You had already. What was? Do you remember the first job that felt to you, or that even you know by st- by common standards, like this is a big deal. This is my first big name. This yeah. is my first big rep. Like what? Talk to me about that. Um, band wise, it was when I photographed Disturbed. Do you know the band? Oh, yeah. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was like the first band that, like, you know, I tell all my friends the bands I photograph, they have no idea of the name. Like, who the hell is uh, Every Time I Die? But then when I started saying like Disturbed, they're like, oh shit, is that like the guy with the with the lip piercing? It started to get I was real. Like, it is, yeah. And then um, that was the first like band that I knew that was, I guess, had a semi-recognizable name. And then um, when I did a few for- Forbes assignments here in the city, I, d- I photographed a cover. And I remember seeing that and that f- felt like a big deal um, because, you know, I'd photograph a lot of rappers and stuff for Forbes Vibe. was yeah. the biggest one. Yeah, because I photographed like G-Unit for Vibe magazine. And uh, I actually love 50 Cent. And he was really a teddy bear to work with. But, you know, he talks a lot about money and stuff. But then the guy I photographed for Forbes, millionaire, for Forbes was like a billionaire. And he was the most humble dude ever in scrap metal business. And I, <laughs> I remember those two came out around the same time. And um, that's what made me decide to come to New York is like I wasn't getting enough assignments to make a living or anything. But I thought if I could get these like living in a small town in Canada, then right. if I was actually if made you're to in jump the center to New of York, media, things will happen. Well, yeah, now is the time to do that. And um, once I got my work visa cleared, I just put my stuff in a truck and came down here. How are you talking? And But even before you did that, you were having conversations with reps mm, yeah. that were of significant That's right, names. Yeah. How did you, did you like go online and try and find these people or did they contact you? How did that start? No, I reached out. So there, I had um, some favorite photographers at the time that were repped huh. by agencies. One was a guy named Peru. He's still one of my favorite photographers. He was repped by a agency called Patricia McMahon in the London UK. And I was doing a working with some, uh, electronic artists out there in uh holland and uh, after my shoot i went and <laughs> met them in their london office and i had just a bunch of like super shitty uh musician pictures um but um i think they saw something in my work and they wanted to try me out so like before they decided to work with me they like sent me on a portfolio mission to all their clients to make sure i wasn't like some little bastard and um why because they they saw the quality of your work but they just couldn't put wrap their mind around your age like what was the issue and how old were you when you were talking about 18 uh seven no wait um 17 and uh it it was an age issue and 
at that time and even now i was actually smart because i never i totally got it because like you know i um it's really easy for a young kid to say like oh man they're judging me for my age but you know i do that now and and i still have some age problems i lost so many jobs because of my age but you just realize you have more time than how, other how old are you now 25 and uh you realize you just have more time than people and you should be patient and no matter what people will judge you for your age but then you just use that and you kind of say like okay well if they're going to judge me forever there's no sense fighting it you can just prove them wrong so that was what that thing was for proving them wrong and then i started working with them doing portfolio meetings like any other ph photographer and starting from the bottom yeah. and just uh trying to get work anywhere that i could it wasn't like a magic step that people have this uh uh, illusion of reps and then as soon as you get a rep you get all this work that you that's not the case at all um so once i started working with them they're great and they still represent me to this day in london i have different reps in the united states now but i still work with them since i was 17 and, what do and you they're think obvious i'm a, there's obviously a lot of people out there young hungry working on a portfolio why it wasn't the gear which you didn't have a lot of why what was standing out to, to everybody? Because clearly um, you were cutting through. Well, I think it was, I, I photographed a lot of musicians, but at that time there was a movement to not photograph musicians um, like in a group shot in like an alleyway, like a typical band picture. There's a movement to use them in like kind of commercial style setups. And a lot of that work, even if you didn't care about music, those portraits look like entertainment work and they look like kind of like um, advertisements for TV shows. You were for this or against it? I was, well, my portfolio looked like that. So even okay. though they are unknown bands, it didn't matter because they were environmental portraits. So um, when people saw that using in a my lot portfolio. Of gear to, to, to achieve those just shots? Just no? speed light flashes and stuff like so that. So standard stuff. It wasn't yeah. a matter of no. having... I was borrowing I was borrowing strobes from a local wedding photographer uh, in my hometown and uh using them every time I could and then when I traveled I had some little Canon speed lights that I'd like put through wax paper and stuff like was that. Was it experimental? Like was it what what was separating it? Cuz if it, if this was the movement at the time it was it was portraits of regular looking people in a theatrical entertainment style ad. So because they were unknown bands, they just look like interesting people, right? So if you want to be a music photographer, it's nice in your portfolio to have a lot of well-known names, but I didn't have any. So all my portraits look more like um, environmental portraits. So it didn't matter. So I didn't like sometimes when people so you, looked you, at my portfolio. You just played to your strengths. I didn't say that they were bands like this is this ba like that no one's ever heard of. It was just a portrait. So I took a lot of the group shots out and just had individual pictures. And that's how I started working in TV stuff because entertainment style photography is the exact same thing. Actually, it's environmental portraits of characters. And these guys in the band had a lot of character. Like they look cool and interesting, yeah, but they don't look like models and they don't look like, you know, known celebrities. That was, so it's an interesting niche. If they didn't yeah. have a model look more rugged and yeah, weird. I was it was lucky because it fulfilled an interesting niche that was uh, important at that yeah. time and still is today. So when you got down here, you knew no one. Mm. The only help that you had was, a, a, like a, someone from the, the agency was able to like, help you with logistics of 
finding an apartment? How did you, when you got here, where did you stay? Like, what did you do? You had, I just found it on Craigslist and, um, my brother helped me move down here. I brought some stuff and I don't know. I looked at places before I had subletted here before when I was on assignments. So you knew the city a little bit, little bit, not really. <laughs> I, you gotta understand. I went, went from like a very, very small town, farms, uh, farm town, yeah, rural town to here and it was a major move and i was completely different then than i am now in a short synopsis how so now i'm a new york asshole that yells at cabs when they cut in front of me that's Before perfectly that, short I was a nice country boy gotcha <laughs> we've turned you into an asshole <laughs> um what how long do you think it took until you started to get into some sort of groove and what what was the signifier of uh getting into that new york groove the New York groove. Well, I met a lot of uh, very inspiring people here. Uh, people who had actually a very similar um, uh, path as me that come from different places, small towns, like you interviewed John Bragel. I met him very early here in New York. And, he, you know, he came from uh, Maryland. And you, you, you meet inspiring people who are just like you that came here that aren't New York by birth, but are New Yorkers in the sense that there's an incredible vibe and energy and uh, workaholicness here. And I found people that were just like me uh, and we started working together and I would see these people who were way more talented than I was in photography and filmmaking. And um, I'd want to be like them or as successful as them. And I think what happened was my taste changed and my view of what was uh like my goals got bigger and stretched further because I saw people in New York doing things a lot better than I was at the time. If you're from a small town, your goals are also small. And when I was transplanted here, my goals became a lot bigger. Yeah, that and, makes sense. Uh, where do you think your taste, what was the arc of your taste or what was, where was it, where was it and where was it going towards? My taste used to be lighting the fuck out of everything and putting a light <laughs> in every corner of a, of a picture. And now it's more refined. You could say that visually, uh, however, in other matters of taste, I've just sort of, uh, you know, I've sort of stepped back and really observed uh, the things that I actually really like and what I like to shoot. When I first started, there's a huge gap between the commercial projects that I shoot and the personal pro projects. And now with every new assignment I get, the line becomes more and more blurred. And I think when you that say line being aesthetic. Aesthetic, yeah, aesthetically and also personal interest shooting. Why, like, w why would there be a difference between personal work and commercial work? Is because um, I was following trends of the time, and I think when you say the word groove, what I found was the things that I have an interest in shooting and the things that I'm better at shooting, and those two worlds became merged. Yeah, that's a, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. Because I mean, but also it made sense, probably business-wise to be following the trend in the beginning so that you can get mm. seen or that you can like just so that people oh he could do this maybe i honestly don't you think need a name first before I think you it can was start a branching off or no I, no I, I think it was a mistake to be honest because uh when i did portfolio meetings for example this, the pictures that really resonated with people were like my portraits from africa or india and it wasn't the other stuff. The other stuff was important in getting me to where I was. But what I've come to realize, even just over the last few years, is that try to apply those aesthetics and that mindset to commercial work. And that's the thing that people are responding to. So they want to adapt this to their brand or their product or whatever. And um, 
above all, people want to hire someone for their unique vision. And that's the thing that's going to make you stick out in a sea of photographers. So I think over the years of being in New York, I just found uh, what I was personally interested in and how that related aesthetically to what I was shooting. And then that's the thing that ultimately gets me hired now for uh, advertising campaigns is to do actually what I do on personal projects, which, right. which, which is stylistically like the holy grail is more, of, you, you know, being able to do your creativity mm -hmm, in yeah. your way and not being told. Yeah. Like m most recently I just did a shoot with the U S army and uh, Jose Corvo and both of those assignments, uh, honestly, I approach the same way I would if I was traveling in Ethiopia or what, whatever. It just was it's adapting feel it. Great, it, man. It felt great, but it was like adapting it to their brand and really getting in the mindset of those things. And those are two super creative understanding companies to allow me to do that. So that's important too. So it wasn't just me like imposing my, my will upon this brand. It was they being asked. hired and being trusted and uh, a mutual trust back and forth that I could apply this for their thing. Yeah. So, what was, do you have something in mind where, it, you know, you had been trying to get the big job in New York now that you've lived here? Was there, is there one that sticks out? Like, this is the one where, like, bang, it happened in New York? No. Everything is like stair steps. Mm. So sometimes you win and you go up the stairs and you're a little higher than you were before. And, and oftentimes you lose and you're set back and you're humbled. <laughs> so there's a lot of... um there's a lot of things in my portfolio that are nice to stay in there that'll resonate for a while, but there's never, as a freelancer, there's never a safety zone. You just shoot bigger projects and you aim a little higher and you say no to things that once you would have jumped at, but there's never like a thing that'll be in your portfolio forever. That'll always get you hired. At least for me, I don't think there is. Was there ever a moment when you were here in the beginning that you were worried that it wasn't working out? Yeah, many times. And was there anything significant that's like, you know, where you kind of, where that worry went away for good or not really? I think uh, what happens is, as a freelancer, is you actually, those things never go away, but you get more used to them. So what happens <laughs> is, is like, you just when get used to your own insanity. That's yeah, good. Yeah, like, like, uh, what happens is, is, um, if you're like me, you've never really had a regular job. You just like those things happen and they're super scary because you're like, oh, no, what's going to happen? And then um, this is cyclical where you're not busy for a long time and then you get busy and you get and then you get not busy. And then it's not like it ever goes away. It's just it's happened so many times before that you don't care. So you sleep at night, rest assured that one day soon hopefully someone uh will become knocking at the door and also you have to be smart with money and like save it and save up and like not uh you know spend money like a fool but you should do things constructively with money to spend money to make money so you have to be careful was there a learning curve there for you i mean i'm assuming there must be feels like it happens with all of us in terms of learning how to deal with that money yeah, for sure. because you've had reps from the very beginning. Did that mean that you didn't really have to deal with negotiating or, or no, you, that was still something that you had to build your chops up on or did they do that for you? No, it's, it's, it's weird, man, because like, yeah, reps are negotiators and that's important because it's actually bad for the industry if uh, young photographers try to quote on jobs that they don't know what they're worth because it, you could devalue the industry that way. So by having reps early on, I never 
you know, had to degrade the industry and sort of say like, oh, only this much because that's all I need to get by. I was lucky to have that um, that uh, mindset and those kind of people working on my behalf. But with that said, you know, that's a that's a that's a photographer's fee. Um, and there's also a lot of other expenses that go into um, into photography, like production expenses and e rental equipment. And I've always been very involved in those. And I think that helps me manage budgets a little bit more. And obviously shooting personal projects, there's no rep that's going to help you manage production side of things. So you learn about uh, money early on. And um, so I think it's a mixture seems of like, like a crash course in economics. And you, it's kind of great that you had yeah, people it's a that mixture. were showing you. Yeah, it's a mixture of trusting them and uh, relying on their expertise and paying attention for later. When you were just starting out, but you had good a good rep and you were doing big jobs, was there ever like a holy shit moment? I'm making a lot of money, or did it always was it did it seem normal, or how did you get acquainted to that? Yeah, I think what happens is. Um, you see it as like, wow, man, I could fly to a lot of places and do a cool project now. <laughs> or like, or like, like I could disappear for a few months um, and do something interesting for a while and no one ever has to hear from me and I can cover all things back home when I go. <laughs> Maybe you could look at it that way. Yeah. I mean, I think with the amount of personal projects, it's kind of clear that that's exactly how you were looking at it. What, um, how many personal projects of that big scale traveling and stuff have you you think you've done to date well it's interesting because i've been to some of the same places three or four or five times let's count each one as one as, oh, as another time i don't know well yeah um because 20 I, I don't know maybe 30 something like that mm -hmm. 20 30 yeah i'd say yeah. that's good and uh but then a lot of the times too, I'm like there for a couple months and I like shoot and then like go back to a city and then go back again. So it's hard. It's hard to say. And then, so, you know, sometimes I'm sent places for an assignment and then I go somewhere else like close by. So they'll, yeah, I'd say maybe 20 or 30 different personal projects over the course of my time. But Which only ones? if you count like the same groups and the same things as multiple. Right. But times. it just shows the, the, yeah, I, I don't relative really, scale of how many times you've done something like that. Yeah, any anyone can go and say like I'm gonna go to every single country in the whole world, but it doesn't mean you see shit. I I think it's important to revisit the same areas and go in depth yes. more so than Absolutely. skirting across the entire globe seeing some uh, of my favorite seeing monuments or whatever experiences have been because like going to a far flung place is cool, but what's really cool is going back to the exact place. And seeing new mm -hmm. and seeing old old people that you've met before and yeah and you always find out so much more things and more um information that's there you know it's like imagine coming to new york and having three days you wouldn't see anything you'd see like Times square and be like wow new york is really crazy <laughs> and, and new yorkers know that that's not new york at all so it's the same thing new york Village, and also there's something whatever. about going when you go to one place that's very like a crazy far-flung spot um, one time it's hard for it to not have dreamlike qualities. Yeah. But that the second time that you go back, there's something really grounding where it's like, Oh, like that tree is still there. And it's not, it, it in a certain way, it takes away the specialness, specialness, the, the way that, 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 yeah, that tree that you might've had lunch underneath that. It was a really special memory the first time, but now ah. it's a tree. 
and and like mean. that's cool that it's just Jared, a tree, yeah. and it's actually nicer, even though it takes away some sort of um, mythic quality about it. It's I actually think, rooted. I think I know exactly what you mean, Jared. That's interesting. I I think that uh, photographers are actually very romantic people romanticizing their travels and their trips and i'm certainly guilty of it um i think you can talk to a lot of people who've traveled that have that 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 tree story <laughs> i think i think that that's a good way to look at it yeah so um what considering how many you've done are there like a it's like a top two or three that really stick out either for an experience had or maybe it was the final product has been the most impactful are there a couple that stick out that you can talk about yeah sure um so i've been doing an ongoing series in ethiopia's omo valley which is a area of the south of the country near the border of kenya and it's been a crossroads for many different ethnic groups for the past uh, few hundred years and some migrant groups have settled there from other parts of africa and uh, what makes it visually stunning is you have one ethnic group and a community that speaks a language, has a religion of their own, and then you go next door and there's a completely other set of uh, another tribe that's migrated there from somewhere else. And it's a culturally diverse area, but it's also a visual area because the tribes represent themselves visually. And I know that you know about this because you've seen similar groups in Kenya, right? In Tanzania, you've been? Kenya, yeah. And... Um, you know, that's a dream for a photographer. I started going there in 2008 in Ethiopia's Almo Valley. And um, it's an area that's inspired a lot of photographers, not just me. Um, and it's stunning. And every time I go back there, that's exactly a place that's very hard to go initially and to kind of get past the idea that, like, you know, you're not there just to skirt the surface and to go remotely and trek and go in depth. And uh, it's so difficult for photographers there that I think that that's one of the things that kind of attracts me to it. Yeah. And I think that especially they, they also look fierce and difficult, but I, once you get to know them, I mean, they're anything but, but it's something that visually you can kind of almost juxtapose the experience that you're having with the way that they look. Well, they're, they're, they are tribal groups. So what that means is that they fear outsiders and that's understandable considering Ethiopia is one of was the only African country that was never successfully colonized. The Italians were defeated there. So there's a weird uh, feeling about outsiders. It's not to say that Ethiopians aren't warm people. Of course they are. But there is a, um, there's a burden of uh, foreigners there. And um, the way you're viewed is uh, different than what you might find in some more open countries. And uh, with any uh, tribal groups, that's exactly the definition of a tribe is you're with your own people and any outsider, whether it's a, a white dude or a tribe next door is dealt with suspicion. <laughs> and you, you can find that all over the world, not just in, in Ethiopia. So instead of being like, why is that the way it is? That sucks. You just, um, you, you approach it by going back and being different and not being a foreigner and treating it as such. And then that's how you can get incredible access is finding some sympathy in that sentiment. And where does that come from? That's interesting. I'd rather be dealt with that in real life than a fake enthusiasm. Yeah. Right. So no, it's, absolutely. It's, it's better that way. The it's fun. It's funny, but I don't know. There are some times where I make this weird connection. It's like, I don't know. I like talking to young kids, not like infants, but like toddlers who can have a conversation 
I enjoy talking to them like an adult. And I'm not making some sort of terrible uh, connection that, that toddlers are uh, tribal people. <laughs> but but that, that not my intention. But no, like no, the notion of, of there's... Because I could even see it too sometimes I'm on a project and someone on someone on the team might be speaking to a try almost like the notion that you have to speak louder because like do you like you start screaming do you understand English? and it's yeah. like there's um, something really the the skeleton key is to to just anticipate exactly what you want out of yourself out of them where do you take the um where do you take the honor burden of representing them how do you try and do that in a way that you feel honor burden is a cool word um it, it is a burden because one you can never expect um to go there as many times as i have and still uh pretend to know shit about what it means to be from there and live there as a as a westerner i observe my role that i was raised in North America and my mold has hardened here and it can't be twisted in any other way. So that is a burdensome because when you go some somewhere and you consider yourself, you're an, a, an ambassador for indigenous people, you have a very important job. Um, and it is one that comes with a lot of responsibilities, but you should never kid yourself and think, you know, everything you should be open to the idea that you can learn something on every trip and learn something and continually have ideas that you thought were right were shot down. You can find that in any culture, but especially indigenous culture, because they're so different from the way that I was raised. So you should be humbled when you go there. And that uh, idea of a burden, I think, is very interesting because you do you care about those people a lot and you want to represent them visually in the correct way. And sometimes in my first trip, I didn't do that. And I went back and I found that I was wrong. I'd written wrong things. I'd change it. And I'd learned from was my first Was there an first example trips. of that? Of like an actual thing that you might have done wrong in terms of representation? Yeah. I think it's easy to go to those areas and have the idea of the noble savage in your head. The uh, If you're familiar with the term yeah, noble yeah, savage of representing indigenous people as a, as a pure culture lost, uh, untouched and savage and... Um, it's not like I went there and those are the things that I wrote or those are the things I saw, but looking at that photography, it's, it's different than the way that I would approach it on my more recent trips. And, um, I'm guilty of that as anyone else. But the thing is, is I have actually learned from that and observed that and, um, read more books on it, <laughs> read anthropologists report on it. And, you know, I was 18 <laughs> at the time of the, total dummy so you know you can observe those things and you can approach those things more carefully next time and what i find interesting is that then all of those learnings can be taken because while you, what you're saying about being a north american and that's hardened you um there ends up also being an issue where you we have a hard time or anyone has a hard time recognizing the differences that are worthy of respecting with even the person across the street or in the next the next neighborhood over in Brooklyn. And oh, totally. I feel like then if you take that approach, um, it could really help your work. I'm thinking of um, the Halloween mm. port, um, photos you took that were just, you know, inner city kids doing Halloween in Brooklyn. And it's, in a lot of ways, you know, that's a culture that you don't know. Yeah, well, it's funny how that project came up because I was actually supposed to go to India on a personal project 
And then I had a commercial assignment pop up in New York that made me have to change that trip. And I was thinking like, what's the point of going to India to photograph a festival, a cultural festival, when something here in New York is happening that a, a guy from India would think is bizarre and crazy. It's Halloween. I'm just used to it. So approaching that uh, project as if I was an observer from a faraway country was actually the goal of that uh, of, of that project. And I'm familiar with Halloween. I grew up with it. And of course, uh, the area that I photographed that in Bush in uh, in Bushwick is culturally different. A neighborhood in Brooklyn. Neighborhood in Brooklyn is called you know is way different from where I from. But there was uh, cultural more cultural similarity there than other places. But I wanted to approach that project as if I was a foreign observer. So that was an interesting exercise. <laughs> yeah, no, it's cool. I it's it's funny how certain projects in crazy places can help for ones that might even be happening in your own studio. Yeah, I don't think that you should ever be dependent on the exoticism of someone that you're photographing. Great so, there, there's some truth about uh, some cultural things that are more visually stunning. That's, that's self-evident. So for example, like the tribes in the Omo Valley visually depict uh, scarification that means something to them or the women, uh, how many children they've had, the men, their battle history. So visually it's, it is stunning for a photographer. You, you can't hide that fact, but if those are the only things that make it interesting, it's kind of a empty, it's, it's empty photograph. You need to have a, there needs to be more power behind it and you can never be dependent on feathered headdresses to make a compelling image. Right. Um, no, the second you do that, it becomes a crutch yeah, instead a of, crutch. Um, yeah. I don't know, an artistic point. Yeah. Um, I think so. I think, and then once you, now that you have a commercially successful career, um, a lot of the quote unquote risk taking isn't necessarily an, econ an economic risk. You're not worried about not being able to pay rent, but how are you evaluating risk now in a, in, in a time where you just got back from a trip to Iraq and, um, I, I thought at the time, like you posted about it and I thought that, that it must have been with like the UN or a, a program or an NGO and it was all under wraps just for safety. And then I get here as we're doing the podcast and you're like, yeah, that was a personal project. Um, obviously well thought out, well vetted, the whole nine came back in one piece. How are you evaluating risk now? As you move forward, well, risk in career should be different from f physical risk. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> those it's are not. those are two different things. So, talking about risk in career, um, I think there's actually um, there's actually in in um, in too much comfort in your career, one should take more risk. So, I'm not talking about Iraq and Syria right now, yeah, but yeah, sure. but what I mean is, uh, if you become too busy getting jobs and uh, you do the same thing over and over again, there's no room for artistic or creative growth. So that's risky. Um, what I mean is you should take more risk to do something new and something fresh. So there's a lot of photographers that might get, uh, you know, trapped in a bubble and they do the same thing over and over and over again and they don't grow. They might stay at the same level. So if you ever get to that spot in your career and you're fortunate enough to get there and be getting work all the time, maybe 
one should take risks to try something new and to explore to even push things further because to me i you fear i fear were... being in the same i fear uh what do you call it like schedule or, getting pigeonholed uh, or? no what is the word i'm looking for um you fear like the mundane repetition of days doing the same thing you want something new and exciting and different that's going to push you your creativities to new levels so if you're doing you you might be doing your clients a disservice not doing personal projects and not doing new creative things because then you just end up shooting the same thing for everybody and if if personal projects are an outlet outlet for creative growth then that's helping everybody because you can go and see new things in your personal work and then learn some new things to apply to projects so freelancer their life should never be in the same place and it's okay to have some things locked down it's okay to have some normalcy but for me those are things that make me uncomfortable so i like to to try new things and push things further do you have an example of when you realized at a certain point that you were doing the same thing aesthetically if so what was that and then what did you do to kind of break that mold yeah, I think the advertising work I've been doing recently, kind of back what I was saying with uh, with uh, personal projects, is applying that to advertising because after a while, you know, I'd just be like backlighting things the same way and doing the same like soft feather light on literally everything. And, you know, to untrained eye, you know, it might look different because there's different subjects in front of the camera, but I'm like, oh no, this is like the same lighting setup or it's the same, it's the same thing. Oh no, what am I doing? And someone's going to notice <laughs> that, that's, that it's literally the same light setup. So um, there's not one example in in specific, but you know, there's, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of examples. So. No, I think that, no, that, that covered it. And how did you, and you broke that in, semi-technical terms just from like changing your backlight and changing your yeah your aesthetically and, like, sure like, aesthetically things you just were purposefully making it different from before yeah for that yeah trying new just things trying to that get you away learned from it. Yeah. yeah i think it's important so that was all great in terms of um career risk and needing to take those leaps and i guess you're saying that the passion projects are an opportunity for practice and like yeah. proof of concepts i think so yeah and then there's actual risk. And I mean, I guess it, it, it's a, you know, we could joke about the topic, but I think especially there are a lot of people that I think want to travel and want to put themselves in positions to get photos that um, other people aren't willing to put themselves in. And, you know, obviously it, that, that, that doesn't always just mean a war zone. It could, it could be hiking up a dangerous mountain or going deep into some sort of jungle. Um, it doesn't have to be the, you know, more self-evident you're now in Iraq, but, um, how are you justifying the risk for yourself? And like, how do you prep to make sure that it is the most safe it can be? So the thing about that trip to Iraq and Syria, the Kurdistan region of Iraq and Syria, I should say, is that, um, I don't really have an interest in other war zones. Uh, I, you know, I have no interest in going out and being a, a crazy next You're not a war, war photographer. No, I'm not a war junkie. I, to answer your question, I had a, I have a genuine interest in the area, in the same way that I have an interest for indigenous groups or uh, religious sects. Um, so when I went out there, um, to or in order to 
you know, properly prepare and do that thing. You know, I've been studying the conflict for a year before and I'm very well versed uh, in the situation. And um, I actually don't advise any photographer to like, I, nobody likes war tourists. Uh, it's, uh, it's harmful to the reputation of real journalists out there risking their lives doing that. So as a portrait photographer, when I went in, I also carried the burden of that. And uh, I had to work very safe and work with credible fixer, incredible people who've done things way more complicated than I set out to do. So um, how, you, how are you justifying that with yourself? Uh, knowing that there, the journalists might be listening to you and be like this, you know, this, this fucking kid. Yeah, like, I would agree with them because um, there's a lot of uh, journalists who, who who stay out of trouble and maybe they like Syria is a Syria is a very deadly country. It was the most deadly to journalists in 2014 than any other country. So you do have a responsibility and a burden because you don't want to be, you know, some kid going off and doing God knows what and, um, you know, add to that number or something out of stupidity. But let me say that the reason why I justified it is because I think that I'm living in a historic time and reading news articles, seeing the stuff come in day by day, you see history unfolding before your eyes and you think, I'm not a photojournalist. I have no interest in doing front lines, conflict, photography. But what an amazing portrait series and what an amazing story to tell. And you do have that responsibility. It's like I could be out here doing ads, which is important. Uh, I pay taxes. I believe in that as a, as a capitalist. <laughs> but um, also there's things happening in the world that perhaps – might not see the aesthetic that I could put on it. And I could show this in a completely different light, no pun intended, but I could show the same pictures that you might be tired of seeing or the same things that, um, that you've seen again and again in a different way. So because of my interest in the area and because of that, I felt okay setting off as long as I was in good hands and I was with a very credible uh, fixer it wasn't just me driving around in a truck hoping <laughs> hoping to see something yeah you everything was arranged with the bases and the gorilla groups beforehand um so that where there was an understanding when i arrived versus being some ragtag uh war junkie as you say yeah um i i'm sure you had hopes about what it would what the trip was going to bring and i know the whole you know try to go in without expectations, but sometimes that's hard. How did it, wh how far off was what you had in your mind to what occurred? Well, I was out there doing a project on the guerrilla fighters of Kurdistan. So there's two groups, PKK, Kurdistan Workers Party, and YPG, People's Protection Forces, People's Protection Units. Um, and those were two groups that interested me. Um, and uh, I actually totally forgot your question, trying to think of the Kurdish acronyms that aren't in, in English. <laughs> Sorry. I was going to say, I don't think those letters lined up with the words. Um, well, they don't because they're in a different line, but they, yeah. do, they do stand for those. But I was trying to think what the Yepiga they say. <laughs> what, um, your expectations going into it Oh. Um, versus what actually happened. Uh, I knew that there was a chance that I would go all the way there and actually not be able to photograph anything. These are people who are busy fighting a war. And the last thing I would expect them to do is, you know, stand there for my portrait when they have things to, to do. 
So there was a risk that I could go there and maybe observe some interesting things, but not get any uh, usable portraits. That was something that I knew going. So I went alone. I tried to keep expenses low for that reason. Uh, however, what happened was um, I actually got a lot of stuff there because of the hospitality of the Kurds and because they understood what I was doing and because I had a tremendous fixer. So I have a lot of stuff, but it sort of uh, tickled my interest, if you will. And now I sort of want to go back and do more and more stuff there while operating at the same level of safety. Um, but we could consider that almost like a research trip so that if I did go back to photograph more, I would know the areas that are uh, easier and safer and uh, logistically easier to, to actually shoot in. And so what, with what you shot now, what are you hoping to do with it? Well, here's the interesting thing as well as it's a personal project, as you mentioned, nobody sent me there. So what that means is I have uh, free reign to do what I like with it as an independent. So it could be an exhibition, gallery exhibition. I could syndicate it to a publication to get the most eyeballs. I'm, I'm interested in, um, in a publication that would uh, properly tell the story and properly display the photographs with integrity. There's a lot of great journalists working for quicker publications that, you know, they're interested in stories that that uh of have, the moment yeah of the moment that already happened while i was there that i saw but i like didn't report on uh so i'm i'm i guess a publication that would be more interested in the in the project holistically than uh than a journalistic uh pub publication yeah, it's obviously of a more thoughtful nature where not not more thoughtful than photojournalism what i mean is different right and i i don't mean to say that that makes what photojournalists are doing is not thoughtful but more that they are trying to get you the story as it's happening, whereas you're taking a minute to think about more layers of the artwork. That, yeah, it's that, apples that, and oranges. Yeah. It's two different, diff, very different jobs, and, and yeah. I respect journalists a lot. I, I think they have a lot more credibility than something like I'm doing, to be honest. But well, just, what are you just hoping a to different achieve? kind of publication would take my, my pictures and say like a, like a journalist. You can't pot actually mean that... The, because you're not you're not saying that your work has less integrity. Not not less in well, you have to understand that in those war zones and those conflicts, there's journalists that have a lot more balls than I do, and they stay out longer and have and have uh, a lot more on the line than I do. Um, that's what I mean by by that. In terms of integrity of the images themselves, I'm not trying to be uh, falsely humble. I do think what I got there is uh, pretty um, amazing, but that's also dependent on the on the subjects and the situation in which they're taking. Yeah, yeah. And what are you what are you hoping you, to get across? Um it's an independent project and um what I hope to show is actually the reality of uh the guerrillas of Kurdistan, which is much different. These are people who are um designated as a terrorist organization because of a problematic history with Turkey and that's important to recognize but also that these are university students and farmers who've taken up arms to defend themselves um, and what you might find talking with them and being with them firsthand is maybe a little different than what media some what some media suggests and as well as a lot of the villages and towns that are being liberated from the islamic state are actually liberated by these sort of uh well by these guerrilla forces and with very light arms, not 
huge armies that are funded by governments, but by people with a fighting spirit um, that's unwavering and a dedication to the people. And um, it would be nice to see that recognized while still understanding a problematic history. I'm not going to deny that. So it's an interesting conflict because you have so many different groups and you have so many different motivations and so many moving parts. And to humanize one of them and to give a face to it is different than hearing a statistic on paper. You can hear 200,000 Yazidi uh, refugees are displaced. You can hear 5,000 blah, 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 blah. But when you see like a portrait series, it actually might give you a different uh, idea of what that war means in that specific area. Yeah. No, I totally, I'm, I'm, you show me a few photos and they're, they're great. And I'm really looking forward to the, um, reception that they get. Um, one last thing, I guess, looking forward as a freelancer where, you know, your opportunities are getting bigger and, um, the good work is more consistent. Is there some, are you thinking about in your mind, like your operations getting bigger either as a larger business or is this just like no this is the way forward and this is what how I'm going to be doing things and it's going to just be more of this yeah I never think you want to grow beyond your capacity I think that's a mistake that a lot of photographers make is that they um they think that they get a few big jobs one year so they can expand their business and then they find the next year like they can't afford all this stuff so you know, I'm really fortunate now. I have a studio working space. Um, you know, I have a great assistant help, Caleb. Um, but you know, I, I've no really plan, no real plans to grow beyond that, like, uh, sort of functional work capacity, but I do have plans to grow in what I choose to photograph and the subject matters that I choose to work with. To me, more than ever, I'm interested in world events and historical things that are taking place today, whether we focus on them or not, they happen. Uh, history is always, is always happening every single day. And when you sort of pay attention to things and, um, at least when I pay attention to things, then it's hard for me to like turn away from them if I do have a genuine interest in them. So I'd like to dedicate my time, my time more to things that what I feel actually matter. Thank you.